0: Ah, mi amigos. Welcome to another Old Head Podcast. I'm Steven, and as usual, I'm going to be talking about some rock and metal type things. Before I begin this week, I'd like to take an opportunity to give a shout out to a few listeners who said some really encouraging things to me over the past couple of weeks. First, we have Ralph from Ohio, who follows me on Twitter. And you can, too, at Old Head Podcast. And then we have a user on YouTube who, I'm sorry, I never got your name, but he has his own page on YouTube under the name Rock Music Exclusives. That's X-C-L-U-S-I-V-E apostrophe Z. And then, last but not least, I got some feedback via Facebook from a guy named Robert from London, Ontario, Canada. And he said a couple very flattering things. Number one that I am a fantastic storyteller, and number two, that I remind him of Joe Rogan. Now, that's fucking flattering as hell. And I appreciate any and all feedback that you guys want to send my way, or just some conversation about the things I talk about in my podcasts or in my videos. I love it. Keep it coming. But while I'm riding the high of being called a fantastic storyteller... I thought I would utilize those skills for this week's podcast and tell you a story. The story of a boy who barely ever grew up. And yes, that boy is none other than yours truly. And this week, I'm going to tell you my life story in albums. And of course, being the total dork that I am, I had to establish some rules before I decided how I was going to do this. And one of the rules is only one album per year that I'm talking about and only one album per artist. So I had to figure out what was the more important album and where did it come into play in my life? Yeah, I am that kind of a dork, people. So let's do this. The year was 1978. Van Halen had just burst onto the music scene and it's no coincidence that a few months later, Stephen Thomas Ivey was born in Austin, Texas. Now, when I was little, little, I don't really remember the music around my house. For the most part, my memories of music as a child were music that played at Christmas time and music that was on the radio when we were driving in the car. My parents didn't have a very big record collection. My two older brothers had modest record collections, but nothing that really sparks any big memories. Now, the first album that really caught my attention and started turning me from a casual music listener to a fan was the 1983 album Thriller by Michael Jackson. And I wasn't alone in this. Every fucking body loved that album. And just like millions of others, I got fanatical about Michael Jackson. I went out and bought albums by the Jackson 5. I had a Michael Jackson glove that I used to wear. I had Michael Jackson dolls. I was really into that album. But because of that, I also started to pay attention to other music that was coming on around the same time. Now remember, I was just five years old. I don't really have a clear memory of how I was ingesting the things I was seeing. I just know the things that stuck with me. And in 1984, I remember seeing a music video for the song, Jump by a band called Van Halen. And so, through whatever means I had, probably just asking my mom, I ended up owning the album 1984 by Van Halen. And I was obsessed with this album. I'm pretty sure at the time, it was the heaviest thing I had ever heard. And you can listen to it today. It's a fucking great album. But I remember I was so into it, I started losing interest and all the other things that I was supposed to be interested in. My parents had put me on a t-ball team. And for those of you who may be listening in another country, t-ball is baseball where they put the ball on top of a little stick that where it rests there. So even though you're a little kid who doesn't know how to do anything, you could still probably hit that ball with a little bat. Most of the time, I really couldn't hit that ball. I was that shitty at sports. But one of my clearest memories from playing t-ball was a day where I was placed in the outfield and I was supposed to be back there ready to catch some fly balls or some slowly rolling balls. But all I remember was I was paying no attention to the game. All I was doing in my head was singing Panama over and over again because all I wanted to do was get back home and listen to that album. I used to sit outside on my swing set, and I had a little boom box that my parents had bought me, and it used those huge-ass D batteries that were fucking expensive as hell. But I would blast that fucking album and go through batteries like you wouldn't believe because it was the best thing I had ever heard. Until 1986. That's right, we're going to skip a year because, frankly, I can't think of an album that was more important to me than that Van Halen album all the way through 1985. Plus, remember, I was seven, so shit's still a little bit cloudy. But things got a little bit clearer starting in 1986. Now, for the Thanksgiving holidays, my family and I would go to a small nearby town called New Braunfels to visit some of my extended family. And I had this cousin, who was pretty cool... And I remember that particular Thanksgiving day, we were hanging out back in his room. And now I don't remember if he was the one who owned this album or if somebody else did, but he played for me the album Raising Hell by Run DMC. And just like with Van Halen, I had never heard anything like this. And it blew my mind. It had a similar urgency and aggression and energy. And just like Eddie Van Halen, Run and DMC were the fucking best at what they did. And you could tell, and it just drove me nuts. And then I started wanting to listen to hip hop also. So 1986 into 87, I was kind of bipolar, if you really want to call it that. I was listening to Run DMC and LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys, but also I was listening to Bon Jovi and Cinderella in Europe. And then, in the beginning of March of 1987, when I was in third grade, for my birthday, a friend of mine from class gave me as a present the album Troops of Tomorrow by a British punk band called The Exploited and I remember opening it and seeing the cover and it had these scary looking punk dudes on the front with bats and chains ready to beat some ass and around them there's like shit coming out of the sewers and stuff it was the most extreme thing I had ever seen and when I listened to that record it was also the most extreme thing I had ever heard That album is a fucking classic, and it opened my eyes to the fact that there was this more intense and aggressive music being made out there, and I wanted it. I wanted to hear more of it. And then, later in 1987, early 1988, I got it. I heard the album that pretty much turned me into a full-fledged rock kid And that was the album Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. If I thought that 1984 and Raising Hell and Troops of Tomorrow had blown my mind, I was not ready to have my fucking soul rearranged by Appetite for Destruction. Just like with 1984, I wore the fuck out of this tape. Yeah, at that point, it was cassette tapes for the most part that I was getting, And I remember, once again, being in the backyard with my boombox cranked up as high as it could possibly go. And I have a vivid memory of me on the swing. Paradise City is bursting out of my speakers and all of a sudden, the sliding door at the rear of my house opens up and I hear my dad yell, TURN THAT NOISE DOWN! Just like in a fucking music video, right? But that was me. I was one of those kids It was getting into this music that their parents just didn't fucking get. And they just thought it was a bunch of fucking noise. And you know what? It made me love it even more. Because I'm like, this is mine. My brothers aren't into this shit. My parents aren't into this shit. In fact, a lot of people I went to school with weren't into that shit. I spent 1988 getting my hands on any heavy rock music that I could. I listened to Skid Row. I listened to Motley Crue. And I fucking loved all of it. And then in 1989, an album with a sound that I didn't know I really wanted to hear came out. Now, I had spent the last three years of my life listening almost exclusively to rock and hip-hop. And finally, one day, I heard a song by a band called Faith No More, called Epic, that was rock and rap. And it wasn't like... The Run DMC Aerosmith thing, where it was basically an Aerosmith song with them rapping over it. It was a new song with these new guys that I didn't know, and they seemed really weird, but I was so into it, and I spent all of 1989 obsessing over Faith No More and the album The Real Thing. And around this time, it was all about finding those sort of weird bands that don't really fit in. I was getting into Living Color and King's X. My little 11-year-old rock and roll palette was just expanding, and I was having such a blast. But by this point, I knew there was more aggressive music out there, but I was a little bit nervous about getting into it. Because I was still this middle-class kid who had been sheltered from so many things, and I didn't really know what to expect from these bands that are doing this heavier, crazy music. And then in 1990, I spoke about this on one of my earlier podcasts, a girl in one of my classes let me borrow two albums. One of them was the debut album from Trickster. Obviously, that didn't really do anything for me. And the other one was the album State of Euphoria by Anthrax. I, up to that point, hadn't heard anything that fast, that technically proficient, that riff heavy, and it was like I was reborn. Everything from my life prior to hearing a thrash metal riff was now just kid stuff to me. And I started to realize also that music, to me, seemed a lot more important than it did to other people. It started to be a thing that I needed. A thing that made me feel better after a shitty day at school with bullies. A thing that helped me focus more when I was trying to fucking do homework. A thing that just made me feel like I was part of something. And then, in 1991, an album came out that not only had the aggression and urgency that I loved in my music, but it also somehow seemed to strangely be speaking directly to me. And that album was Nevermind by Nirvana. And just like with Faith No More, I kind of remember feeling like I wasn't expecting this music to hit me the way that it did. But it did. That album was something that got me through some really rough times that year of school. And it connected with me in a way that no other album had up to that point. And most importantly, that album and that band broke down that barrier where I looked at rock and metal musicians as something that I could never be. All of a sudden, I heard this music that I felt like maybe I could do this too. These dudes seem real similar to me. And they're making this music that doesn't blow my mind technically, but speaks to me internally. And so, very soon after that, I got more interested in trying to figure out how can I make my own music. And I started dabbling with a keyboard that I had that had different sounds on it, and started writing kind of simple little songs. And in 1992, an album would come out that would shape who I became as a guitar player as well as a songwriter. And that album was the album Meantime by Helmet. Now, that album is so rhythmically... Heavy and catchy and just pummeling, but at the same time, just like Nirvana, didn't seem unattainable. And so I knew I wanted to find more music like that. Music that seemed like it was made for the common teenager. But at the same time, I still loved that fucking heavy shit that I knew was still way too technical for me to play. But I still wanted to hear it. And that's when me and my small group of friends discovered death metal. And we listened to Cannibal Corpse and Obituary and all that stuff. And a lot of those bands, I didn't discover. I was hearing from other people. But in 1993, an album came out that I discovered and I really loved every minute of. And that album was the album Covenant from Morbid Angel. At that point to me, that was the heaviest and most brutal and extreme thing I had ever heard. And for a little while there, I became a little bit obsessed with trying to find all of the most brutal music that I could find. And then, around 1994, I remember my group of friends that were so much into death metal, just like me, started listening to this newer punk music that was going around. And at first I was like, what? Wait, wait, guys, we're regressing here, aren't we? I mean, we're about pushing things as far as they can go, right? Let's find out how much further we can go. And in reality, there wasn't a lot further that we could go in hindsight. But at the time... I fought this whole punk rock thing just a little bit. But then I found a quote-unquote punk band that satisfied my need for fast, aggressive, technical music and also qualified as a punk band. And the album that I got really into in 1994 was the album White Trash, Two Hebes and a Bean, by the California punk band NoFX. Now, at the time, the NoFX album that everyone was ejaculating all over was the album Punk and Drublick. But I had trouble getting into that album because it was a little bit too simple. Sure, it was still fast, but White Trash had this tiny element of metal in it. There was some lead guitar playing. There was some riffs. It seemed closer to thrash metal, or crossover, if you will, than it did punk. And so I started seeking out bands that sounded like that. And at that point, you're talking Lag Wagon, 10 Foot Pole, all of these Epitaph and Fat Records bands that were coming out at the time. But White Trash, Two Heaps and a Bean has got to be the pinnacle of that style of punk music, in my opinion. And That also coincided with me starting to write my own music on guitar. I got my first guitar as a present for Christmas in 1994, and that was an Aria Pro 2. Look it up, it's kind of lesser known, but at the time it was the only one that was affordable at the pawn shop. And I started to learn how to play guitar. No, I wasn't good enough to start writing music even as good as no effects, so all of my early music kinda sounded like somewhere in between Nirvana and Helmet. And in 1995, I started my first band, and we were okay for a bunch of 16, 17-year-old kids, but I knew that I wanted to push myself to make music that was meaningful and moved an audience, and I didn't really know exactly how to do that. And then in 1995... A band came along with an album that showed me how you do it. And that album was in on the Killtaker from the band Fugazi. That band and that album in particular took everything I thought I knew about rock and roll and heavy, noisy, aggressive music and just fucking rearranged it, turned it on its ass and made this glorious noise that completely inspired me then and continues to inspire me today. And honestly, every band I have ever been in and every song I have ever written, there's some part of me that is pushing to be as good as Fugazi. And one of the things that I loved about Fugazi was that they had something to say. They were involved in politics and social issues and they wore that shit on their sleeves And I fucking loved it because I was now about to become an adult and a lot of these issues were important to me. And in 1996, when I was a senior in high school, what I consider to be the ultimate wearing your values on your sleeve album came out. And that was the album Less Talk, More Rock, from another pretty technical punk rock band called Propagandi. And this album was so important to me at the time, not just because the songs were great, but because all these things that I felt were very important were all addressed in some form or fashion on that album. Homophobia, women's rights, racism, all of these things were included in this amazing, brief little punk rock package that, for the most part, sums up how I feel about a lot of these issues, and that is, don't be a bigot. Quit thinking that you're special and don't forget how your actions affect other people, and how the actions of your country affect the rest of the world. I'd never heard shit put so bluntly as it is on Let's Talk More Rock. So, I graduated high school in 1996, and by 1997, while I was getting into all of this punk and post-hardcore and shit like that, the heavy metal and hard rock music that I had loved so much when I was younger was shifting and changing and had become something that I just wasn't very interested in. There was the whole new metal thing. There was all these generic alternative rock bands. A lot of the metal bands that I had loved weren't doing anything that really excited me. And so by the end of the 90s, I was kind of lost. I didn't really know what I wanted to hear. I I knew that I wanted to hear something, but the music was no longer coming to me. I was having to go and find it. And in 1997, the album that caught my attention and pretty much held it for that entire year was the album OK Computer by the band Radiohead. Now, not heavy, kind of rock and roll you could say, but definitely a little bit in left field for a rock kid like me. But what they were doing with that album was something different and something exciting and... That's all I really wanted out of music. And so I tried to search for music that was similar to Radiohead, only to find out that most of it is very boring or kind of lame. And so I found myself getting even more lost and unsure of who I was as a music fan or even a musician. So the years 1998 until 2004, I'd like to refer to as the lost years. I was listening to music, yeah. It's in my blood. It's what I want to do. But nothing was sticking. Everything was kind of making me happy at the time. But in the long run, nothing was really fulfilling my urge for exciting new sounds. And so I was kind of all over the place. I went back and tried to listen to some older shit that I had never listened to before and tried to get into some of the weirder sort of indie rock shit that was going on and none of it was really that satisfying. And then all of a sudden, in 2004, I heard the album Leviathan by Mastodon. And I talked about this on one of the previous podcasts. That album totally made me remember how much I loved heavy fucking metal. And that album started to wake me up, not only to heavy music happening at the time, but also reminding me to go back and listen to those old fucking albums, all the ones that I loved. And guess what I realized? Holy shit, I still love them. And so 2005, 2006 was me kind of just rediscovering the metalhead inside of me. And then in 2007, there was another album that came out that was kind of a newer sound that really made me excited, and that was the album Xenosapien from the band Cephalic Carnage. That band is fucking crazy. It's like a death metal grindcore whatever the fuck you want to call it, it's all over the place and it's amazing. And that was another boost to getting me really back into metal. And then in 2008, a band that I had called my favorite band for such a long time, a band that held such a special place in my heart that I even kept track of them when they were doing stuff that I really didn't like that much. That band came back in a big fucking way with the album Death Magnetic. The band is Metallica. I devoted a whole fucking podcast to them before, so you know how I feel. And that album was so amazing to me, and it just made me feel like I was fucking 12 years old again. And even today, it's just such a great comeback album. And that album pretty much single-handedly turned me right back into a raging metal fanatic. But not only that, I became very interested in going back and seeing what all these old bands that I used to love were up to and really keep track of them and support them because they're all getting older and a lot of them are still trying to do shit. And in some cases, I'd found that fans had abandoned them and they struggled through so many hard times in the 90s and early 2000s that it really made me want... To sing their praises when they put out something that hit me in the same way that the albums of my youth hit me. Now that we're reaching the end of the early 2000s, it's pretty much time to wrap this up because we're getting a little bit closer to where we are now. And if you listen to my podcast, you kind of get where I am now. But I'm going to end with 2009 and a great example of moving on, charging straight through hardships and adversities, and coming out the other end with something amazing and honestly unexpected. And that was the album Black Gives Way to Blue by Alice in Chains. Now, when they announced that they were going to continue with the band... After Lane Staley's death, I was super skeptical. I loved Alice in Chains and they sounded so unique. There's no way you could replace a key element of the band and continue to make great music. No fucking way. Well, I was wrong. That album totally blew me away, exceeded any expectations I may have had, and kept me on board with Alice in Chains and kept them as one of my favorite bands. And I think that was a valuable lesson for a man who was now in his 30s and had kind of had to start over a lot with a lot of things and had struggled with growing up and being responsible. And I'd like to think that that album in that time period was me kind of finally being ushered in to adulthood. And here we are now. I'm a man in his 40s who still can't stop talking about the music that affects his life and has quite literally been the soundtrack to my life. And I hope you all got something out of this too. If you got a minute or an hour... Try writing down your life in albums. It's very interesting to look back and see how your favorite music kind of explains who you were at any given time. And hopefully, we all get to keep adding to that list for many, many years to come. Thank you all for listening. Holy shit, this is my longest podcast ever. If you made it this long, you are amazing. I appreciate the continued support. Please go check out my YouTube page. I got videos coming out there too. And most importantly, don't let your love of music slip away from you. It's out there. All you gotta do is go look for it. All right. I will see you guys again next time. Bye.